Uh, we're in a series called Holy His, and we're talking about uh, what it means for us to, uh, to rest in the beauty of the Lord, which is really what we sang this morning in that second song. We're so thankful for that. And um, the fact that God has called us to set our sights on him, to take pleasure in who he is and be satisfied, allow the beauty, the, 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 the magnitude, I'm going to just say magnanimous character of who God is to enthrall us so much that it affects how we live. If it doesn't, we're not seeing God for who he is. And then we followed talking about uh, our vision uh, last week and this week is to, to be a people who reach and teach and live out what it means to be wholehearted followers of Christ. Last week, we focused on reaching and teaching. And this morning, we're going to look at what it means to be wholehearted followers of Christ. Now, that can be an intimidating phrase in and of itself, because you might think instantly about all the things that you should be doing that are godly that you're not doing. And there's a place for that. There's a time to look at how we need to be living uh, that we're not, ways that we're not living how we know that we ought to before the Lord. But before we get to that, we need to examine our heart and what motivates us to live. How do we begin to live as wholehearted followers of Christ? And I really, honestly, I wrestled with whether or not to do a kind of a survey on that, of, of the Bible on that concept, and uh, I just landed at saying, you know, we're going to look at one psalm that I think uh, helps us have the right posture, because living as a wholehearted follower of Christ is really more of a posture of our awareness of God's greatness, our need, and our commitment to trust Him. Living as wholehearted follower of Christ is a posture of your awareness of God's greatness, your need, your desperate need for God, our desperate need for God, and our commitment to trust in Him. Uh, if you have a Bible with me, with you, or an, a Bible app on your phone, go ahead and open that up to Psalm 86. Uh, there should be a black Bible near you. Uh, it is on page 462 there. It's always good to see the context of what we're reading in, and we're going to look at this in three sections uh, this morning. We'll look at the kind of the first, and then the middle section, and then the, the, then the end. Uh, this is organized in, in what would be called a, a chiasm, which is really a uh, if you think of the chevron sign or a greater than sign, uh, points. Uh, Parts one and three really line up, but, but they find their, um, the crux, their main point in that middle section of the psalm. So we'll look here together, Psalm 86, one through seven. David is writing here and he says, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I do, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of trouble, in the day of my trouble, I call upon you. For you answer me. What David is, is saying here at the outset of this psalm is that we are to cry out to our sovereign God from your place of desperate need. 
You see, if we don't recognize that we have a desperate need for God, we won't cry out to him. We'll live life according to our own standard. We'll live life according to our own resources and the resources of those around us. But only when we see our desperate need, number one, for a savior, only when we see our desperate need for learning how to live according to God's ways, to live in a way that pleases the Lord, will we cry out to him. We don't come to God as an additive for our life. We cast off everything within us, and we say, I cannot do this without you, God. Well, how does this happen? Well, he speaks of his helplessness, as, as I just mentioned. He's poor, he's, he's needy, he's, he's downtrodden. He's a pawn to others. David is writing many of the Psalms David writes as he's fleeing from Absalom. He's fleeing for his life. So he's, he's poor and he's needy, but not only for physical safety, but he's speaking here of his spiritual state. The fact that he's needy for God's grace. He says there right at the beginning of, of, of verse 1, Incline your ear, O Lord. And we see the word, O Lord. This is the sovereign, uh, the sovereign term for God. Yahweh. O Lord. I was speaking with, uh, uh, I think Pastor O'Brien and I were speaking about this a couple of weeks ago. I had a, a college professor that would talk about how sometimes when we pray, and if you do this, don't get all paranoid about it, but sometimes we use the Lord's name almost like a comma you know, or a, a semicolon in our prayers. It's sort of the, the uh, dot, dot, dot while I'm thinking about what else to say. Now, it doesn't mean if you do that frequently that that's always what it is. I'm not reading into your mind. But I, I would say right here, David might, might take issue with that. Very intentionally, David uses this name of the Lord. He calls out to the Lord many times using God's name. Incline your ear, Lord and answer me, for I am poor and needy. And he says, I'm your servant. I, I trust in you. You are my God. Right? There's a, there's a, there's a two-way love that we see here. He's saying, I, I, I am dearly devoted to you. I am loved by you, and I'm loving you back as I stri strive to live my life. And he's committed to trusting the Lord. He says, I am godly. He's not saying, I am perfect, and I'm righteous, and I've never sinned. He's saying, I'm a man who's been loved by you, and as a result of that, I strive to be godly. I strive to be God's man. I strive to follow you. He's trusting the Lord. And then he asks the Lord with an expectation that God will answer him favorably. He says in verse 3, Be gracious to me, O God, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. 
He is committed to going to the Lord. He's not asking God once and then moving on to something else or someone else. He's not asking the Lord once and then seeing what other options are available out there that might help him out. He's saying, Lord, you are my God and I am your man and I am coming to you for help. Be Please be gracious to me. The word grace has carries this idea of undeserved kindness. Lord, show your kindness to me. I don't deserve your kindness. How do we know that? Because I'm poor and needy. Do you see yourself this morning as poor and needy? Do you see yourself as one who who needs God's spirit to work within you in order to be able to live as a wholehearted follower of Christ? Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the meek. They'll inherit the earth. Matthew chapter 5, as Jesus speaks the Beatitudes. Gladden the soul of your servant. For you, O Lord, are good. See these reasons he's listing? Now, I want to encourage you in your prayer. Uh, I've said this often. It didn't originate with me, but I would encourage you. Don't hear that as you have to. But I need help in my prayer. I don't know about you. I need help. My words are shallow. They're often self-centered. So I need the Bible to help me continue to point me back to Jesus, to continue to point me back to the Lord, to help remind me of the fact that God has always been good to his people. In the midst even of allowing his people to go through difficult circumstances, God's goodness is still found in that because God's purposes for his people are always good, and which means righteous. It's always the right decision. When you go through what seems to you to be the valley of the shadow of death, it is for God's glory and it is for your ultimate good. So God is good in trial. God is good in the midst of financial hardship. God is good in the midst of relational struggle. God is good when life seems to be spinning all around and you don't know what's happening and it's massively confusing. God is good. Not based on what he gives to us, but on, on the basis of who he is. It's his character. It's his nature. He's good and he's forgiving He's abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Now, we need to pause here for a moment. Sometimes we read parts of Scripture, or we want to encourage people with Scripture. You know, you might even, well, you take different passages of Scripture that speak about who God is and how God works to the good of His people. And it would actually be harmful to take any passage of Scripture that speaks of that and apply it to every person that you know. Now that might seem confusing, but it's important to recognize what David says here. He says, you are good, forgiving, and you are abounding in steadfast love. That's a covenant, persisting, never stopping, never stop pursuing kind of love to all who call upon you. Have you called upon the Lord? And laid yourself out before God and said, God, I need you. I will not work my way to heaven. I get it. I have so much sin in me. It consumes me. I need you to change me. I need you to make me new. 
God's promises are for those who trust him for salvation and for how to live. If you're not trusting the Lord, you won't know God's goodness to you personally at that moment. If you do trust the Lord as your savior, you may look back on your life and say, oh, even when I wasn't walking with God, I can see how the Lord was working in my life ultimately to bring me to him. What a gracious God. What a steadfast God pursuing me before I ever loved him. Give ear, Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. There it is again. Listen to my cry for undeserved favor, undeserved kindness. But I know I can ask you, Lord, because that is who you are. You're a God that blesses people with your presence and the peace of your presence. He's good. He's kind. In the day of my trouble, I, will call, up, I call upon you. For you answer me. Thinking about that line as we were singing, I will wait for you, I will wait for you. On your word I will rely. I will wait for you. And I was just thinking, oh, I will wait on you, God, for you will answer me. And then the immediate thought that came to my mind is, I'm terrible at waiting on God. I'm terrible at waiting on God. I worry, I get anxious or tied up in knots. I make decisions according to how I understand the situation, often without considering what the Lord would have me to do. And sometimes when I do consider what the Lord would have me do according to his word, I think, no, but surely the way that I'm thinking about this has got to be better. And even in the midst of it, I know that it's not right. And then sometimes I still act in it. I'm like, what a fool. What a fool I am. We need to cry out to the Lord. Oftentimes we will consider what we need to be doing. We will consider what, uh, what God says that we need to be doing. We'll be considering how we are living in a consistent, or I mean, in a, in a current situation. And what do we do in that? We typically try to kind of balance the scales. Well, God says to do this, and I'll give this uh, sort of this amount of weight. And well, what do I think I ought to be doing? And sometimes I balance the scales in the way that makes sense to me, not always according to God's word. And I sort of try to to weigh it out like that, weigh out what seems to be the right approach. I want you to listen to Thomas Thomas Chalmers. He he preached a sermon called uh, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The The Expulsive Power power. Think of the idea of expelling something, the expulsive power of a new affection. He says the best way to overcome the world is not with morality or or self-discipline. Christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and the excellence of Christ. They overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world. Jesus. Only when you see Jesus as more magnificent than your own way of doing things, only when you see Jesus as as more grandiose, more wonderful, more beautiful than the human desires of the heart for, for power or prestige or a position or for wealth or for influence, you say, no, 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 none of those things compare to the beauty of who God is. I love the Lord. Why? Because he's perfect in everything that he does. And he has heard my cries for mercy. 
He moves into the second uh, section of this psalm here, verses 8 through 13, and uh, he says, uh, There is none like you, O Lord, among the gods. There are, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations shall come before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Notice he's starting very broadly with the nations, and then he's going to move to a more personal, more intimate explanation and, and declaration. For you are great and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. All of the nations of the world, they, they worship various idols. They worship various kings. But the nations that are your people will come to you. They will worship you, O Lord, because you're great and you do wondrous things. And then he asks another question. There's a, a supplication here, a specific request to the Lord that he asks. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. He starts broadly, and then he, he moves to a more personal request for the Lord and a commitment to walk in the ways that the Lord has called him to walk in. This is sort of the hinge point of the psalm right here, the, the, the centerpiece of the psalm. Verses 11 through 13, after, after extolling the name of God again, he says, Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Knowledge of God's word is never for the purpose of a, a test. You, we're not cramming for a, an exam that's coming up. It's not for Bible trivia. It's not so that you can talk about the Bible and look smart to people who may not know the Bible as much as you do. Paul says knowledge puffs up. Knowledge without application, it's useless. In fact, it's worse than useless. It will condemn us. If we know the way to live... And we persistently avoid putting it into practice. Why would we do that? Because we're not poor and needy. Because we're not calling on God for help. And so if we're going to live as wholehearted followers of Christ, we come to the Lord from a place of neediness based on who he is, knowing that he doesn't look to shame us. And then we come to him and we say, teach me more about who you are, Lord. Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. I love this prayer. Unite my heart to fear your name. If you were to take a sheet of paper out right now and you were to draw a picture of your heart, if you were to draw little mini icons of all of the things that take up your time, that you spend your money on, your relationships that you have, the things that you pursue in your casual time, and by the way, none of these things are negative in and of themselves. What are the things that, that control your thinking when you're not trying to think about something specifically? When you have time to just enjoy something and go do something, what are the things that you, you lean to? What are the things that you find yourself going to over and over again? And where does the Lord and learning God's word there fit into that picture? If you drew a picture of your heart, how would it be divided or subdivided? Are there rooms in your heart? Think about it like that. Uh, kids, if, if your heart was at home, 
if your heart was a house and you had a music room and you had a relationship room and you had a, a study room. I know most of these kids wouldn't put a study room in there. You'd be like, yeah, let's make that a playroom. What would be the things that would describe your heart's desire, what you would give yourself toward, where you would put your time, your energy, your money? Now, I know right now this could start to sound a lot like you need to be a wholehearted follower of Christ. You need to, well, you need to do this and you need to do that. And we would love a whole bunch of rules. We'd love a whole bunch of descriptions. Tell me what I got to do. At the end of the day, we're coming to the Lord and we're saying, God, I need you to unite me. Because you know what? When I begin to go after a situation, my heart gets fragmented. Very quickly, I find out that I've got duplicate desires raging for attention in my heart. I want to follow the Lord in obedience, and yet I want to be in a relationship that, that, that seems to satisfy me, at least for the time being. So am I willing to sacrifice the relationship, or sacrifice the relationship for the best relationship with the Lord? Or am I willing to say this relationship needs to be a healthy relationship according to how God has laid out in his word that is best for me? We see competing desires. James talks about it when he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask of God, I'm paraphrasing here, who gives graciously to all who ask, uh, ask him for it. But, but we need to do it with the right motive. We need to do it with the right desire to glorify the Lord. Lord, I'm asking you for these things in my life, not so I can just be happy on this earth, because this earth is not my home. This earth is not my home. My home is an eternal home. And I, I need to be willing to sacrifice here in increasing levels that which will set me up best for eternity. Number one, taking that throne, I'm sorry, well, okay, I can say this a few different ways. So I could, if, if you picture a crown on your heart or a throne on your heart, you might ask, who's sitting on that throne? Is it me? When I have competing desires, do I run to what I understand to be best? What we all need to do is flick ourselves off of the throne of our hearts and through humility, and trust, say, God, I need you on the throne of my heart. Beyond that, more than just becoming a, a wholehearted follower of Christ to be a Christian, I need to learn your ways. Please don't view this as simply academic. Please don't think if you're not a reader, you're not called to learn God's word. Please don't think if you're not a great student, learning God's word doesn't apply to you. God gave everybody a Bible so that we can learn his truth. And then notice the point of how he says this next phrase, unite my heart. He doesn't say, teach me your truth and I'll take care of my heart. Teach me your ways and through your ways, unite my heart to fear your name. You unite my heart to, to honor you, to reverence you, and to really fear that when I live according to my own ways, I will be stacking up judgment for myself. I will be stacking up consequences for myself because even though God loves his people, he does not, most of the times, he does not remove natural consequences from our sinful choices. 
I could take you through my life, we wouldn't have enough time. And I'm not kind of saying that playfully or in a false, falsely humble way. I could take you through my life and I could talk you through decisions I've made that, that were not what the Lord wanted for me and what the consequence, consequences were. In fact, one of my sisters on a, on a thread that we have going between us as siblings uh, made a comment recently. And it had nothing to do. <laughs> it had nothing to do with any current, well, her current situation. And, and I responded in a way that threw them off. They didn't even know what I was talking about at first. You know why? Because I still regret certain decisions I made years back that still affect my perception of certain relationships I have. And when she explained herself, I said, oh, I answered out of guilt <laughs> of my childhood patterns. You know, the Lord has freed me from that. But there are sometimes consequences, thought process that still remain as natural consequences of our sinful choices. So we're saying, Lord, I, I'm not going to try to take care of things on my own. I need you, Lord, to unite my heart around your word and around a desire to live for the glory of the Lord. Unite my heart to fear your name so that I believe that when you say certain things will happen in Scripture, if you live this way, I know that to be true. And I honor you, I revere you, but I do fear the consequences of not living according to your ways. I don't want those consequences in my life. Verse 12, I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God. With my whole heart, I will glorify your name forever. Do you see what he's saying? Two times he says it here. Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in your truths. Unite my heart to fear your name. And then he says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God. With my whole heart, I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. Notice his commitment to glorifying God with his whole life, with his whole heart. When we say uh, our, our desire is to reach and teach and live out what it means to be wholehearted followers of Christ, we're saying with everything in me, the way that I think, the things that I love, remember the expulsive power of a new affection. When I love God because of who he is and because of what he's done, I won't want the lesser things. I want the fellowship that I have with my Father that comes through prayer and through growing in His Word and living in biblical community. This has always been God's plan for helping us to grow in Christ-likeness. That's the reason. Great is your steadfast love toward me, a wretch, Toward me, one who is poor, one who is needy. For you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. 14, he says, O oh God, insolent men have arisen up against me, arisen up against me. A, a band of ruthless men seeks my life. And they do not set you before them, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast 
love and faithfulness. So here's where David personalizes this to his specific situation. Now, the first part of the psalm is acknowledging who he is personally and speaking about God's goodness, which he knows from situations in his past. And he also knows from how God has worked in, uh, in his people's ways in times past. This is one of the reasons God's given us his, this uh, incredible historical narrative in, in the Bible. We see that when God's people have rebelled against him, there have been consequences. When God's people turn to him and worship him, there is joy and there is blessing. But nothing, whether people follow him obediently, whether people turn to their own ways time and again, nothing will thwart God's ultimate thread in all of Scripture. Nothing will thwart the promises that God has made to his people in all of Scripture. And so here or I'm sorry, in the beginning of the psalm, we see these things generally speaking, God, you're abounding in love and and faithfulness. Uh, You are good, Lord, to your people. You are forgiving to all who call call upon you. So now listen to my plea for grace. That's verse 6. So now here in verse uh, 16, we see him uh, getting more personal with the Lord here. But in 14, he says, he explains the situation. Uh, God, insolent men have risen up against me and a band of ruthless, ruthless men seeks my life. Lord, they want to kill me. I'm just trying to stay alive and follow you here. They want to take me down. What is your situation? What is your situation before the Lord? Where do you need God's help in your life? I hope you have a, a few things coming to mind very quickly. And I hope you're not saying, I feel like if I admit this to God, he won't love me as much. And that's a, an earthly kind of relationship, not a relationship with our heavenly father. Are you not identifying anything because you don't see your need for God to act marvelously in your life, to do things that you know you can't do on your own, to change your heart in ways that you know you can't conjure up? You you can't make it happen by your own self-discipline. You can't make it happen by sheer determination. This is my situation, Lord, but I know, I remember, oh Lord, you are merciful and you are gracious. We sometimes talk about mercy and grace. Mercy is that I don't receive from God the punishment for my own sin that I should deserve. Or if maybe you don't receive a natural consequence that you know you should deserve, that would be God's mercy to us. Grace, gracious, is that he gives us more than we can calculate that we don't deserve. We're poor and needy, we're wretched, we're sinful, we're God-haters, and he gives us salvation. Even after our salvation, we still sin at times, anybody? Hands? No, no hands? Here we go, couple. Okay, obligatory hand raise. We still don't get the punishment we deserve. Why? Because Jesus took all of our sin upon himself at Calvary. And we get all of his righteousness. You are merciful and you are gracious. Slow to anger. Oh, so slow to anger. And you are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me. Be gracious to me. 
how odd would it be if we went to the doctor and we sit in the doctor's chair after waiting for a while or we go to fill out that form and we check, you know, have you experienced this or do you have this or do your parents have this or whatever, we go through that whole list. It feels like you have to fill those things out like six times, I feel like. But, but anyway, but so we, we fill out that information and then at the end, you know, like how can we help you with this visit today? I mean, it doesn't say it like that, but you get the idea, right? And we just say, oh, I'm all good, I fixed it. I mean, we'd be happy to take your money, but why are you here? We don't go to God as those who have figured it all out. We don't go to God as those who don't need his grace, don't need his mercy. We identify specific reasons why we need his mercy, why we need him to continually care for us in this life and, 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 uh, and lead us through the difficulties that we face in this life. Turn to me, be gracious to me, give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Lord, I need your strength. I'm your servant. He says earlier in the psalm, uh, for I am godly. Again, don't hear perfect. And don't think that you can tell the Lord or can't tell the Lord you're godly because you're not perfect in it. Because none of us is perfect in it. Turn to me, Lord, in this specific situation. I have people that are chasing me down, seeking to destroy my life, seeking to kill me, seeking to get my money, seeking to hurt me in a relationship seeking to, to up me in a job, uh, potential promotion. Lord, come and be gracious to me. If it be your will, give me favor in the eyes of my employer so that I might get this promotion so that I can use increased influence, so that I can use increased wealth for the glory of your name and the furthering of your kingdom, if that's your genuine prayer. Oh, no, I didn't get it, Lord. Lord, help me not to, not to, to, uh, to, to hold on to, to evil thoughts toward those who maybe cheated their way into my promotion or maybe just simply I wasn't as hot as I thought I was and as maybe deserving of the promotion as I thought I was. So give me humility. Help me to honor those who are over me if I don't like them, especially if I don't like them. Give me love. Give me the same favor toward them that I have asked you for those who were over me. Help me to walk in the presence of, of your strength. Empower me. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame. Because you, Lord, have helped me and you have comforted me. So we need to, we need, and this is a really long point, uh, we need to bring all of God's past faithfulness and eternal character to bear on your current situation as you ask for God's help to live wholeheartedly devoted to him. That breaks all the rules of how to make a point when you're preaching. I'm just telling you. Bring it all to bear. Maybe that should have been my point. Look back to God's past faithfulness. Rehearse his grace and mercy and love. Acknowledge who you are in your sin and your desperate need for God. And ask for God to give you what you need, which he promises to do through his word, through the body of Christ, and through his Holy Spirit's work in you to live wholeheartedly devoted to him. Psalm 84.11 tells us that God withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. Psalm 85, 12 tells us that, that Yahweh, O Lord, is the phrase we see here. Yahweh, O Lord, will give what is good. And David says here, Lord, would you work a sign of favor on 
on my behalf so that those who hate me might see and be put to shame. In other words, he's saying, Lord, if this is your will for me to continue on or to move in this direction, would you work in such a way that other people see your work in my life? Not for me, but that they might be put to shame, that they might realize they're not hot stuff. And because you have helped and you have comforted, which is why we say past help and comfort lead to the present plea for God's goodness. Lord, you have done this in the past. Do it again. So that in whatever I am facing in my life, I might live to the praise of the glory of your grace. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. It's one of the reasons we remember the Lord's death and what the Lord Jesus Christ did in living in this life. He, he came from heaven to live on earth with all of the trappings of an earthly body. He set aside aspects of his, of his divinity in order to live uh, right, rightly and righteously in every way so that he would be the only pure, perfect, spotless lamb, the only one who could ever give his life to save a world full of wretches. beginning with me. And we come to the Lord's table. And if you're one who has said, I am trusting in the Lord imperfectly, but God is my savior. You might say with David, I'm godly. I'm imperfectly godly. He is my God and in him do I trust. And we say, Lord, I remember. I need to remember again and again why you shed your blood and why your body was broken on Calvary for me. Because I'm poor and needy. And Jesus said, do this until I come again. If you are a professing follower of Jesus Christ, we want you, we invite you to take and celebrate the Lord's Supper, take communion with us. If you're not sure, listen, there's, there's, there's nothing in eating this uh, bread and drinking this juice that you even need to be concerned about. What you need to be most concerned about is, is even maybe just staying in your seat or come, grabbing somebody around you and, and talking to them about where you may be with the Lord or without the Lord. And there's no shame in that. In fact, it'd be, it'd be quite humble. It'd be quite like David who said, I'm poor and needy because everyone is poor and needy. And so we invite you Christians to come and, and, and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. We have two uh, stations that will be up front and two in the back. We have um, gluten-free communion up here. And so we invite you to come if you need that and, and take, um, take that. Here's the question I want to ask you as we close. What is the one area in your life? You, you, you wouldn't be doing well for yourself to try to think of maybe all of the areas. Unless you're categorically just saying, yep, clearly I need the Lord. But... David moves from this broad language to very specifically saying, God, I need you here. I need you in this situation. My soul is downcast. My, my countenance is, is, is down. I, I feel ashamed. I feel dirty. I feel uh, discouraged. I feel 
Whatever, the, whatever it is that you're experiencing, you say, Lord, I'm going to take that to you. And I'm going to ask you to show me a sign of your favor. I'm not going to demand what the sign is, by the way. I'm just going to ask you to show me that you're real and that you're actively working in the world and in my life. And then say, Lord, teach me your ways that I may walk in your truths. And then we stay committed to it by God's grace, asking him for help over and over and over and over and over. Listen, Christian, there is no shame in going to the Lord over and over and over to ask for help. It shows a broken and contrite spirit, which is what God creates in us and requires of us. Oh, Lord, we, we need you. We need you in, in more ways than we even know we do. Uh, for this morning, Lord, would you, would you take one way that we need you and help make this concrete to us? Would you help us to understand that we don't need to live according to our own devices and that we're actually just digging a deeper hole? Would you recall to mind the, the many, many ways that you have worked in our lives, that you've worked in the lives of our, of our Christian ancestors in the past, whether they're related to our immediate or extended family or, or your church in general, your people of old that we read about in the Old Testament? You are a God who has always been faithful and always been faithfully working for your glory and in the lives of your people. And all of this we want to, to culminate in the praise of your name. And it will one way or another. Every knee shall bow and every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we want to do that willingly. We want to do that boldly. And we want to do that publicly. We love you, Lord. Use this in our lives, we pray, practically, tangibly. We pray these things in Jesus' name, worshiping you and praising you. Amen. Let us worship together.